0: Bossable Podcast is proudly sponsored by Finitech. Finitech is Finland's largest IT contract recruitment agency specialized in connecting the very best IT professionals with the very best companies. The economy is finally on the rise and IT professionals are in high demand. There's hardly a better time to start your own company and become a solo entrepreneur. Yes, the market is that hot. It's not freelancing anymore, it's solo entrepreneurship. As the leading agency, Finitech has a lot of different projects to choose from. Finitech will help you find your next engagement so you can focus on doing what you love and do best. Go to finitech.fi and go solo. You're listening to The Possible Podcast, and I'm your host, Sami. Today's guest is Bengt Holmström. Bengt is Finnish, but he's spent the last 40 years living in the U.S. Currently, he's a professor of economics at MIT. Bengt was recently awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, together with his Harvard colleague, Oliver Hart, for their contribution to contract theory. So, essentially, Banked has spent decades studying incentives and trying to figure out how to design better incentive structures. And this has been a recurring theme on the podcast, so I'm sure you can appreciate how excited I am to have Banked on as a guest. We talk about what it feels like to win the Nobel Prize, then we talk about incentives, obviously, and we also talk about how transparency isn't necessarily always a good thing. Enjoy the episode, folks. You were actually recently awarded the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences. So
1: you probably heard this question a thousand times, but what was it like to get the call? It was 4.15 in the morning in Boston, and I thought to myself that either it is a, a very bad call, some, something bad has happened, or then something very good. After that, what did you do? Did you go back to sleep? No, they call you 45 minutes uh, ahead of announcing it so that you will be ready to you know prepare and then they interview you right after that and they script the whole thing quite well in the sense that uh, they have been through it many times and you have not (laughs) so they tell you what to do they give you some advice and uh, what will happen and and indeed you know when it goes on the air i think within an hour there were about a thousand emails and phone calls and so on so it was quite a you to be prepared. And then MIT organizes a press conference where the president comes. And, and so, it, yes, it, the first day was really something. My wife, you know, her, her biggest worry was what kind of clothes would I put on? <laughs> that was her first thought. Of course. She didn't seem at all happy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to wear to this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she did hug me and give me a kiss. But then the next, the next three months we spent thinking about or two months, I mean, she was just thinking about her dresses. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel that winning
0: the prize changed your life after the first days or after the first weeks?
1: It's a good week or two at least where you re- it just doesn't seem to register quite. Occasionally, you think that this is just a dream or something, you know. The, but it's uh, you know I have just woken up in my dream and I am going to wake up soon. In re- really, yeah, yeah, and it's not <laughs> and, true, and, and, and it's a it's a surrealistic feeling. But uh, you know, it has uh, meant a lot more work in the first year, but uh, of course there have been pleasant things as well. I don't think in the long run it will change my life that much, or I hope at least. Sure. For you,
0: would it be fair to say that winning the Nobel Prize was a dream come true?
1: Not really. Obviously, I thought about it because you are not going to win the prize unless you have been talked about in some ways. And and so, so you are aware of it, especially, say, in Boston, where there's Harvard and there's MIT, and there are a lot of yes. Nobel Prize winners. So they are having a Nobel Prize as such is not that special in some sense in Boston, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, it gets talked about and your name gets talked about. But I don't think anybody really thinks it happens until it happens. So yeah. the, it is a surprise. It's it's like putting you know money on the roulette table and you realize you have a chance, but it's not like you have covered the whole roulette table with money. Yes, yes you know, exactly. You, you know, yeah. you have a few numbers there, and then your number comes up. So yeah. it, it is a surprise.
0: Yeah, yeah. All, all that before that actually happened, it's just speculation.
1: Yeah, and 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 obviously there are there are a lot of people that uh, can get it more than will get it. So I'm very aware of that. After that, it's been like you've, I've seen you in the
0: news all the time talking about various issues. So I, I guess it also became a good platform
1: for you to share your thoughts on matters of relevance. Yeah, Economics is in a special situation because everybody seems to think he or she is, a, is an expert because you live in the economy yes. and, and, and you see it all the time. And Economics is a complicated subject and it comes up with a lot of non-obvious conclusions, let's put it that way. And um, they sort of think half of the time at least that my claims are crazy say about transparency being bad. What am I trying to hide or something like that? And in fact, I do think that the uh, degree to which transparency today is believed to be absolutely and obviously always good is, is really scary. Because I think it is uh, actually a real threat to democracy, if I put it really starkly. So that's an example which really upsets them because they think I'm crazy. I'm sure, And, yeah. and, and they don't understand the sort of... Transparency is good in a lot of cases, but it has a dark side.
0: That's a great topic for us to discuss a little more. I definitely want to delve into that. But before we go into to the actual topics, I'd still want to talk a little about your background and how you uh, started working uh, at Alstom, and you were there working on this corporate planning system, yes. which was which was kind of a trend at the time. Yes, that people were building these corporate planning system and using mathematical models to forecast. Their business for yes. like five years uh, yes. into the
1: future, and your opinion was that that was crazy already back then. Well, I didn't go in there with that opinion, but as I went there and I started to collect data for the for the program, which is supposedly suggesting good solutions or good ideas at least, I realized that on the other side there are people that understood that what they tell me about the facts about factories, how much they can produce the kind of data that uh, these programs needed, they saw it as a game partly. They were not dishonest in the sense that they believed in their thing. They wanted to get investment money for X or Y or Z. And uh, once they were convinced that's what the factory needs, they were not hesitant to distort sort of the numbers to get the money. And you know, basically by telling that it's already, uh, you know inflating the expectations about the investment, then and so uh, once I saw that, I realized the bigger thing is not computing what the optimal thing to do is. The bigger thing is to get these people to tell more or less what they know. Yes. So
0: instead of them having to game the system, that they would actually share the things yeah. that they
1: actually know, and and then we yeah. could use so the real ins- data. Yeah, so that's an incentive problem, a classic incentive problem. Yes,
0: one of the focus points of your work has been incentive structures. And in your Nobel Prize lecture, you said that when you started studying this, you thought that to improve performance, we simply need to link performance to pay. So essentially, we'd reward good performance with bonuses of some sort. But now after 30 years or so after studying this uh, and winning a Nobel Prize for your work, what's
1: your stance or your opinion on this now? There are two phases, you know. The first one was to understand the model that was uh, in use at the time. It's called a principal agent model. It's just... I'm trying to get you to work, say, I'm the principal and you are my agent and I'm trying to get you to say sell houses or sell cars or whatever, that's kind of a cano- canonical setting, simple setting. Or like a,
0: a boss and an employee. Yeah, boss yes. and
1: employee. It could be, by the way, it's a very generic structure, so it could be a doctor and a patient, where in this case the patient would be the principal. Yes. And the, the, the question is how do we get the doctor to do the right thing decide on the right things and so so it's a it covers a lot of situations sure and so you want to understand that general structure of that kind of relationship and and so the first phase was to understand how the model thinks i'm a theorist so you build models and it's a very critical thing to understand what the logic if if it proposes something you know and and she says this is how the optimal way to incentivize uh, sami is you know, you want to understand exactly why is it proposing that. And that wasn't well understood and that was sort of my first discovery, let's call it, to really understand how the model thinks. That it's really things like it's making inferences, you know, that it's taking your performance and then it's asking how much does this performance suggest that you did what I wanted you to do or we had sort of agreed that you would do. The problem being that I don't see what you actually do. Mm-hmm. But I'm making inferences about what you did. Sure. So did you work hard? I can't see whether you did. But if the outcome is good, presumably it looks like it's in favor of the view that you worked hard. If it's bad, uh, maybe not. The problem being that there's other effects. You may have had just bad luck. The circumstances might not have been bad. People, customers were not coming in. You know, it was bad week. So, do you see, there are other factors. So, that's the basic generic structure. I don't want to impose risk on you. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, I don't want you to have to carry uncertainty, you know, on uh, be responsible for things that you can't control. That's a trade-off. You know, if I make it very strong, the incentive, then you, there's a lot of risk on your shoulders also. And, and that may not uh, be warranted if the incentive problem is not very complicated, say.
0: Through your work, do you have uh, opinions on, like, is there a certain type of work or a nature of work that you shouldn't use incentives to get better performance? or And is there a field where you think that incentives are a great way to get better performance from employees, let's say?
1: Maybe I should explain it by explaining, the next stage was to understand that people don't just put out, say, effort or something simple. They do other things. They, uh, they sell cars, but they also affect the the showroom's reputation, you know, the business's reputation. In other cases, they may produce things and they also control the quality. So they are, they, they are multidimensional things that they do. Exactly. You, you may not want to put very strong incentives on people because they may s- then not care for, say, something that comes down the pike like the environment or something like that. So as soon as the tasks get more complicated and they almost always are more complicated, then you shouldn't just, zero in on a measure that isn't well aligned with the whole package of things that I want to incentivize you for. So we call this situation multitasking. We are thinking about it as if you are doing many things. You are are doing quality, you are doing quantity. It of course also happens at the same time, but it's kind of how much do you focus as you are doing this on the quality thing versus the quantity thing and so on. And in these situations, uh, the basic result or or important insight is that that you should not put excess emphasis on something that you can measure if there is something very important that you cannot measure. And in fact, to incentivize something that's hard to measure, such as the environment, caring about the environment, or the long-term returns of the business in reputation and so on, it's not as easy to incentivize those things, you may put some, you know, you can give them stock or something like that if they are high up the hierarchy, but if they are somewhere lower in the organization, that's not really a very effective scheme because you can give so little incentive. So the key and the surprise in some sense is that the way to incentivize hard uh, to measure tasks is not to incentivize easy to measure tasks. because. Uh, if you incentivize easy-to-measure tasks that are perhaps not as valuable, that uh, crowds out the incentives for the hard-to-measure tasks. So you allocate your time in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, and and as a result of you setting numeric targets for uh, the easy tasks, you will increase people's focus on those easy tasks and they will focus less on the high-value tasks Yes. That don't have
1: any metrics yes. attached to them. This simple idea, it expressed in more complicated ways, and they sort of a a theory around it. But uh, but this simple idea explains, you know, almost all the scandals that you see. You yes. say take the Wells Fargo scandal in America. You know, where they started to sell or set up uh, accounts at the Wolf, Wells Fargo bank. For customers without the customers knowing, and they were basically shell accounts, so there was no activity in there. But because they had been incentivized to open up accounts or sell more products, and uh, I think the other side of the story is that initially that incentive worked very well because they they genuinely sold products like insurance or whatever it happened. You know, they wanted to say other things, more higher value things mm-hmm. than just deposit accounts. It was a good idea because there are people who wanted to actually have these accounts or these other products but eventually they run out of them and then the bosses or they're still on hard incentives so that excess pressure against the fact that you don't have really anybody to sell anymore led to another activity that you never thought about perhaps which was to create shade you know uh, shady accounts sure and, and so this is an example where activity is born, which we don't even think about. So the unintended activity. Yes. And, and, and this is very typical, I would say, as I said, you know, scandals almost always have this character that you have pushed too hard on something easy to measure and it has unintended consequences. Mm-hmm.
0: You're listening to the Bossable Podcast. I'm interviewing MIT Professor of Economics, Bengt Holmström. We are talking about incentives and how we often locally optimize the things that are easy to measure, and how the most valuable things are often very hard to measure at all. Now, let's get back to the interview. In your opinion, would it be safe to say that organizations are overemphasizing pay for performance
1: as an instrument of motivating people? No, I, I wouldn't say that. The closest I come to being paid a, a, a bonus is, 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 you know, this Nobel Prize. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. I, I, I can't say that it was, maybe it was some in, incentive driver, but, <laughs> but it wasn't very explicit. But no, I have lived my life without bonuses. I think now there is a lot of talk about, you know, incentivizing people more strongly with pay. So the question is, you know, what do the firms do to put in place incentives? And I already suggested one, they do use extensively sort of job designs and constraints, promotions and, and so on, which are not expressly linked to if you do this, then you will get that. But it is much vaguer, the connection between what you are doing and what you are getting in reward eventually is much vaguer. So So the career concerns are a very powerful driver. Sure, so that means
0: that when you don't have these metrics that you can simply try to optimize and try to maybe even game, but if how you're measured is more uncertain, more vague, and that actually, as a result, you will need to look at the bigger picture and you will need to look at like the things that we kind of already mentioned, like you will need to also be concerned about the reputation of the company. How will this affect our company in the long term and not just, for example, closing this one deal?
1: Yes. So you actually the, the alignment that you are looking for often is that my concern for my reputation is aligned with your concern for your the business's reputation if you are the one that... Know, it's mm-hmm. So we are all performers in life. You know, we, When we are born, we perform for our parents, when we get older, for our friends, then for our teachers and eventually for our bosses. So it is the fact that uh, we all want to be appreciated. And that either for instrumental reasons, like if my boss really likes me, maybe my chance of getting a promotion will go up. But I think there's more than just that makes you feel good if somebody says you are doing a good job, even if it's just a person on the street. You want to feel like you are a good person, you have a contribution in society, you have a contribution to the company. So that sense of contributing, I think, is really what companies in the first instance step into and aligning the people. And And the interesting thing is that these hierarchies and other things that are created have the feature that you know who you are going to try to impress. You you know your audience, so to speak, who is the important person, and that usually is your boss. And so that is another take on you know why hierarchies have some value. A lot of
0: existing corporations or companies have these structures that will lead you to try to impress your boss, but I think it would be possible to create organizations where all those structures would be guided towards you trying to impress the customer instead of your boss, we have too few structures that guide us to actually work for the customer
1: that's true in some situations, but not all. If the company has thought about this carefully and your boss is uh, is doing his or her job well, you know it will create a link between the customer, me. And the boss. Sure. And and so that if I do well for the customer, that is pleasing the boss. Sure. So if we are just if it's just your you and I'm your you have a couple of salespeople say, then it's pretty obvious that you will see how much do I sell. You will see all sorts of things, and then then th- that is the way I please the customer. Now in bigger corporations, you the link can, may become very vague and it is true of course that you, are, you do a lot of things for the boss and this is the negative side of the incentive. I may, may you know, please you in the wrong way. So I'm making, doing things that make you feel good. I may be telling you stories about how well we are doing or I may agree with you when actually I think you are just totally wrong about this. Yes. But, you know, I, I, it all depends on how you react to what I say. That's going to affect how I behave towards you and how. So, so these imp- what we call implicit incentives are very subtle and complicated. You don't set a dial and say this is how this is how strong it is now. You may say accidentally something and don't realize how powerful an incentive or disincentive that may create, or how wrong or misguided incentive. So. I guess this is all about leadership, you know, how you lead and how you communicate what should and shouldn't be and the values you are instilling on your employees. All these are part of Mm. sort of creating the right guidance and the incentives. But I'm trying to tell you incentives are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And this whole design problem is actually a big part of the organization design. When we think about a customer and a customer has
0: some needs and there, there's a lot of uncertainty and like that is one of the reasons why we have for example KPIs that we try to simplify the uncertainty into a KPI or several KPIs because they are more concrete than the uncertainty that we have with our customers. And what we're trying to do is trying to make it easier for the employees to actually work on things that are relevant for the customer. But as a result of this, what also happens is that because the things that are valuable for the customer are actually really hard to measure often, we end up measuring the things that are easy to measure. And yeah. then we end up locally optimizing the things that are sort of important to the customer, but not the big picture. How about, how about an organization where we don't have the KPIs in between the customers and the employees, and we actually try to just coach and help our employees to actually deal with the uncertainty of dealing with
1: the actual customers well, I would approach it I think when you start thinking about designing incentives, the first question you should ask, what if I give no incentives exactly yeah you know what if, what if I just say you know Sami, you this is what I would like you to do with the customer yep and 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 I'm asking really nicely yep. and, you know, so and the answer is. In a lot of ways that's enough in many places. It is enough. As soon as I start to take some measures and say, you know, I may say that I want you to focus on these things but not tie any explicit money to it, that tends also to work reasonably well. But what if it is actually something you don't like to do? It's a little unpleasant relative to doing other it's not that you don't like to work, it's just that we all have favorite things that we like to do. I actually like to wash dishes at home, but I hate to do some other things. And and my wife likes other things, not that I help her very much. But, you know, it, it, it's funny how we, we, we do immediately certain things we really like and then we leave the unpleasant things late. So that's true in the workplace also. Of
0: course. And,
1: and therefore there is a distortion. So then you have to have that challenge. And then the question is whether you should come up with uh, financial incentives and and some firms, you know, obviously, especially at higher levels, they will have small bonuses tied to some of these KPIs and it turns out, you know, that uh, these small bonuses actually have quite a big effect. Not because it's a lot of money, but it is a stronger signal when there's money tied to it. So they think this has got to be important because the the company has tied or my boss has tied money to these particular KPIs. But even if there is no bonus, it turns out you change your KPIs, people will ch- that will change the behavior because it's a signal that the boss is going to look at these numbers. So one of the instruments for tapping into your desire to be good is actually what you make visible sure and what what you what you are signaling that this is what i as your boss am looking at so those can be tremendously powerful also so visibility in the, now we are getting to the discussion about transparency <laughs> yes. and the problems so <laughs> yes. you can see how it's coming now because if you are looking at the wrong things it's no better than paying for the wrong things yes yes even though there's no money the looking at it is going to change your employees' behavior. This may be a little detailed, but, but it is actually a very interesting insight that universities, what motivates me and other professors in the university? I We just talked about the fact that uh, you care about your boss. Well, one way universities differ very much from companies is that we don't care about our boss directly, and I'm not I like our president very much and so on, but he's not the guy I'm working and sort of trying to impress. I'm trying to impress my peers. And so that's a very important difference between firms and universities. In fact, we are more like entrepreneurs that happen to be allowed a place at MIT. We are really intellectual interpreters and we are, we are sort of working for ourselves in that sense. And we are. So this, by the way, suggests that if we are going towards this world where everybody is for himself and herself and therefore market reputation, so to speak, becomes important to the customer you were concerned about or whatever it happens to be. And by the way, peers, if you look at the open source you know, coders, what do they care about? What other coders think and what their reputation is as coders? They work for nothing you know, the open source, they are not paid, but they become, you know, everybody knows this guy is a coder. Eventually they will get paid a lot. So we are in the same way. My salary is determined 90% by what my peers think. They will, in the early years, they they decide from outside letters, they decided whether I would get tenure, be promoted. They make offers to me. If they make offers to me, my salary will go up at MIT. It's, it's, so it's, it's all peer-driven in some sense, the yes. whole thing. And they decide whether I get the Nobel Prize. Yes.
0: When you describe that model, there's very few things that, are one that you have like KPIs on these easy-to-measure tasks. Yeah. But instead you have this peer reputation that's very uncertain and very hard to manage and very, very hard for an individual to try to game. Yeah. So what if we were able to transform firms more in that direction where instead of your peers we have customers and people are trying to impress the customers and uh, there are no KPIs but there's just like trying to
1: impress the customers. I try to argue that the key is that I know who to impress. Now I call it my boss. But if the boss thinks I should be serving my customer bills, she sees how I'm doing with the customer, then I'm going to impress my boss by serving the customer. So that's how it goes. So in that sense it works correctly. But why does it have to come through the boss? Why can't it, whatever the boss is looking at, the employee would just look at directly? Well, you don't know. You know, maybe the customer isn't the most important thing. You are working out of the premise that all businesses are all about the customer. There are a lot of other things that they are doing. There, let's call it, there are other customers. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's not like there's just one customer. If, if it's just one customer, matters are easy. But what if there are hundreds of customers or different kinds, and there are different kinds of things you have to do and service, and you have to also help other people in the company. You know, to you have to educate them, you have to train them, and so on. You don't want to overemphasize the customer. You also want to make sure you pay some attention to building, you know, the human capital building in the company or sharing your ideas and so on. This is a complicated, you are just taking your first steps, Sami. <laughs> 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 you're, you're, you're getting into it now. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: You're listening to The Boss Podcast. And this is my interview with Bengt Holmström, the Nobel Prize winning economist from MIT. For the purposes of this podcast episode, we're done talking about incentives, and we're going to move on to the final part of the interview, where we talk about transparency and the problems that it can create. Why do you think transparency is overemphasized or why do you think that transparency is uh, is a bad thing?
1: Well, there are two questions there. I think it's overemphasized because the layman thinks if you are not transparent, you are somehow shady because they are thinking of transparency as an instrument for controlling corrupt performance and so on, which is correct. So that's the that's sunlight story. You know, it, it does drive away the bad stuff. Being more transparent, say, in the political arena for instance, has an absolute and powerful effect on the politicians because their audience, the people they care about are the citizens. They want to be re-elected, is one thing, in order to perhaps further things that they really believe are important for the country, so I don't want to portray them as somehow very selfish. But when it comes to, you know, saying, should I do what I really believe is right for the country versus should i do something that gets me reelected the closer we are to the to the election the more this second component becomes important and so if we make it very transparent what they are doing then the citizens tend to think that if we see more then we are better informed and in, but the problem is yes you may be better informed but the relationship between the important things versus unimportant things may get much worse. That is, you get more informed by things that are really not that relevant. Such as did you you know abuse a credit card for $100 or something like that, or was there some inappropriate behavior of one kind or another? Whereas the really important stuff usually is hard to see because the citizen doesn't see the context in which that decision is made. The whole idea of representative governance, is that you let the politicians become more informed about matters so that they can decide in an informed way about matters. They're saving on the information. So I'm going to elect Sami. I'm going to vote for Sami because he's rather like me. You know, I like the way he thinks. And and then if I see something odd that Sami does, I may think, well, that's really odd, but he must have seen something that makes it rationalizes what he made. I, I'm trusting that he is he's sort of a representative of me. Or he may have made a deal with somebody so that get a compromise that on the whole, you know, furthers my goal, but it was a necessary part for to get this other part of the legislation through and so on and so forth. So all this kind of old highly valued and important sort of making politics, you know, making a sausage sometimes. It doesn't look pretty, but it is in the eyes of economists or most of us, it is actually quite functional. So if I would try to sum that
0: down using politicians as an example, because of too much transparency, we end up talking about someone misusing a hundred dollars and we don't talk about the actual issues that the politician is working on and not performing on well or is performing well on. Yeah. But the we end up talking about a minor
1: detail in the whole thing instead of the bigger picture. If you look back at history and you look at, you know, some of the great people and leaders, you know, some of them are not that pleasant or they have they have dimensions like Kennedy or somebody like that. You know, he would have a hard time in a transparent situation. <laughs> and And uh, wouldn't pass the master today. and And I'm not you know, belittling these things. I think it's important that they are behaving appropriately. But there's a lot of mistakes that are made. you know you're you're just getting very cautious. It's getting to be a, such a risky business that you don't dare to take positions that or do something that really is brave. Now, all of this, of course, can be a matter of just things the world is changing, they learn to behave you know, and so on. But I I think it is really, really a problem. So let me take another example. Mm -hmm. So this is one example where the public thinks it's obvious that doing this more transparency is better. And this logic explains to them that as they are trying to get more aggressively asking for transparency because they think the politicians are not doing well and they're not getting anything done, it just makes the situation worse. It just paralyzes or polarizes all the things that the public is complaining about is fueled by this desire to get more and more involved. And then we can, of course, get referenda, you know, all sort of people wanting to have votes on everything and so on. This is a catastrophe to go down that road. You run into this, in my view, a lot in economics. You just see that the public is running after instruments that actually make the thing worse, not better, and they are absolutely convinced that they are doing it better. So that's the paradox of, it's a, I call it like the Copernicus problem, you know, everybody sees that the sun goes around the earth, it rises in the east, it goes down in the west. Who the hell is telling us that the earth is going around the sun? This must be nuts. <laughs> Economics is very often that. It's about what appears to the layman as the sun going around the earth, actually, isn't what really happens. So that's a very. Do you see the appear? Yes. What appears to the yes. layman is just the reverse of what happens. This must must be very frustrating. <laughs> it is very frustrating. You know, it's very frustrating to be the only person who has is right. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, it's actually very exciting to think that you are the only person and then try to convince. But take the, take the medical profession. So the people think it's very good to know exactly how many patients died or how, how many operations succeeded for this surgeon. It's very bad for the health system because the surgeons will react by not doing those operations that are risky. So they, there's a lot of operations that are not being done in the United States today because they just don't take it on because the reputation of the hospital will go down. So they manage their reputation even to though, the disadvantage of the patients. Yeah, so so you even, see, if,
0: even if it would, make actually, it would actually make sense for them to do the operation, they don't. Like, yeah. they don't because of the risk for their reputation if it doesn't go well.
1: Yeah, and this is a different version by the way of the problem that is for me Individually, it would be good to know, is A better than B? But in the interest of the whole, it's not good because they will alter their behavior to the detriment of some other people. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, this is another example of, of where things sort of, everybody thinks that's got to be right, that it's more transparent. How about if we talk about
0: this in the context of organizations and companies and... There's definitely a trend towards more transparency in companies too, and uh, I guess one example of that is people sharing their salaries. Or, well, one example is Supercell; they've publicized their financial data to all the employees. Uh, I think on a weekly or a monthly monthly basis. So, do you have any thoughts on that? Is there a limit to transparency there, and where is that limit, in your opinion?
1: I'm not that experienced. I mean, empirical evidence will will tell. So if it works for them, that's got to be good. I'm not here to determine what others should do. But I'm just saying that it has its own problems. It's interesting that, uh, that public universities have to publish information about people's salaries. Private universities only have to publish the best paid, I think, is it top five or top ten in the whole university? So usually it doesn't even bring in professors necessarily. So, and the other salary information is not known on the whole unless people share it. Both systems work for an interesting reason, which is that the public system also has very bureaucratic rules on how you can pay salary. So they can't just decide on the salary. They have to follow certain rules, usually seniority rules or other rules about the salary. And therefore, revealing the information about the salary, it's not a signal to me that I'm paying less than Sami because I'm worse. No, I'm paid less than Sami because these are the rules by set by somebody that I don't really care about what they think. And so whereas in private universities... They are free to basically set whatever salaries they want all the time. So there, even a thousand dollar difference in so you know range of you know two hundred thousand versus two hundred five thousand. You know that that may be irritating to people, or they may read a lot into that little difference. why did Sami, who is exactly the same, doing the same job, he's at the same level as I am, he's been just as long out. Why is he paying more than I am paid? You read into this. It's not the money that matters. It is the signal that matters. So, having people compare signals, we all think that we are better than average. So, you know, it really has a it has a very damaging. In fact, I think this is this has been shown to be a problem with the CEO salaries. It's another example. You know, they started to reveal how much they are paid, and publicize them, and so on. The consequence. All the salaries started to go up because you saw people that said, well, God, Sammy is in that company. It's a smaller company. Why, why am I paid this little? And the poor started to say, well, this is going to be demotivating for Bengt. we he, he, think he's better than average, and then my salary goes up. The idea is that if you inform people about all this and put it in the public's eye, then somehow this will curtail the increase in wages. Exactly the opposite has happened. So yeah, another example, where the layman wants something, but uh, it, it, their actions deliver just the opposite.
0: Thank you a lot for your time. I definitely learned a lot. And I think there's a lot for me to process in, in, in this. So thanks
1: a lot. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So there you have it. If you want to delve deeper into Bank's work, you might want to check out his 30-minute Nobel Prize lecture on pay for performance. It's really good stuff. I'll put the link into the show notes. As always, if you appreciate the content, share it with others. That's the best way to make sure that there will be more episodes of Boss Level podcast. Thank you for helping me out. The podcast will be back with another episode in two weeks. Talk to you again then. This episode of Bossable Podcast is sponsored by Wunderdog. Wunderdog is a 70-person digital design and development agency. And they're doing this digital service creation thing right. They co-create with their customers. They get feedback on their designs from end users early. They experiment and learn rapidly. They combine design and tech, and most importantly, they aim for outcomes that change industries. The company is built on the seamless interplay of purpose, people, and processes, but at the core is people. Wunderdog does wonders. Go to wonder.dog, so that's wonder spelled with a U, so that's W-U-N-D-E-R dot dog, or just or just you'll you'll find a link in the show notes That's probably easier just click on the link in the show notes wonder.dog <laughs> awesome go check them out